For generations, lynching was used as a weapon of terror and control by whites against minorities, especially African Americans. The Ku Klux Klan and all its branches were particularly known for it. But in 1981, the lynching death of Michael Donald led to a civil court case which finally cut the Klan off at the knees. This is the ABA Journal's Modern Law Library, and I am your host, Lee Rawls. Today, I'm speaking with Lawrence Lemer, author of The Lynching, the epic courtroom battle that brought down the Klan. Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Lawrence, we often think of lynching as primarily something that happened during and prior to the civil rights era of the 1950s and 60s. Michael Donald was killed during my lifetime, but I have to admit, I did not know about this case. Uh, how did you become interested in this killing, this tragedy, and decide to write about it? Well, I'd written a previous book about lawyers called The Price of Justice about two Pittsburgh lawyers and their fight against Don Blankenship, the CEO of Massey Energy. I sent it to Morris Dees, the founder, co-founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center, asking for a blurb from him. He read it and liked the book a great deal and called me and said he had this extraordinary story that had been sitting there all these years. He never found anybody who he felt would be, he could give all the information to to write the book. And so I went down and spent many months down in Montgomery. I had an office at the Southern Poverty Law Center. They gave me all the legal documentation. And I wrote a book that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution says makes To Kill a Mockingbird read like a bedtime story. It certainly is chilling. For our readers who don't know about this case yet, uh, hopefully they'll pick up your book, could you please give just a brief overview of the events that led to Donald's death and then what led to the court case? Well, between about 1870 to 1955, there were an average of one lynching a week of African-Americans in the South stopped in 1955, but in 1981, March 1985, on Saturday morning, people woke up that morning and there was a black man lynched, hanging from a tree in Herndon Avenue in downtown Mobile, Alabama. African-Americans showed up and they began crying. They fell on their knees and beat their hands on the ground because they thought this was something that was gone, something that they threatened. This fear was in their souls. But the Klan had given rebirth to this idea, hoping it would show that it was still vital and it still could threaten the lives of black Americans. How did this particular event start off? How was Michael Donald chosen for this terrible crime and who was responsible for killing him? Well, there had been a, uh, a black bank robber in Birmingham who, after robbing a bank, had killed a police officer. It's a very controversial case and was brought down to Mobile to be tried. It was tried before a largely black jury. The week before the lynching, the Klan got together outside of Mobile, and in the meeting, they decided that if that, if there was a hung jury or he was let off, they would go out and kill a black man to show that their brutal form of supposed justice, which is just the opposite of justice. So Michael Donald was walking to get his uh, aunt a pack of cigarettes, and these two young Ku Klux Klan members. One, uh, James Tiger Knowles, was only 17 years old. His friend, Henry Hayes, was 25. Knowles pulled a gun and got this young black man in the back of the car. They took him out into the countryside. They beat him up. He tried to fight back, and they bludgeoned him to death, and they slit his throat, put the body in the trunk, brought it back to Herndon Avenue. Now, people ask, you'd ask, why didn't they just dump it in the woods? Why didn't they dump it in the ocean? Because it was a public message that they were trying to set off. And that's what they did by hanging them from a tree. How did Morris Dees become involved in this case? What led to the involvement of the Southern Poverty Law Center? Well, originally, Mobile didn't like the idea that lynching had 
occurred in their pristine city. And the three innocent young men were, were uh, arrested for this crime. They were let go and the federal government came down and they found the two murderers. Uh, Morris came down for the trial of one of the murders for Henry Hayes, who was sentenced to death, convicted and sentenced to death. And he sat there in the courtroom. He thought, well, these two young men have been convicted of this, but they're just with the persons who did the deed. The Klan itself is behind this leadership of the Klan, Robert Shelton, the imperial wizard. And he vowed he would sue the Klan and break it. Now, his colleagues at the Southern Poverty Law Center, the five brilliant young lawyers who'd come down from the North to help him, they thought this was a crazy idea. They thought he was that, that was dangerous what he was doing. The Southern Poverty Law Center had been firebombed, been threats against their lives. And they thought legally it wouldn't work. They would never be able to break the Klan this way. But, but Steve said he was going ahead. The five lawyers left the SPLC and he went ahead and with this civil suit against the Klan. On behalf of Michael Donald's mother, is that correct? On behalf of Michael Donald's mother, indeed, who wanted justice for her son, who was born in a time in the South when too often a black person would just disappear. People didn't even know what happened to him. And there was no two justice for black people. And that's what she wanted for her son. And just that the two murderers were convicted, that wasn't enough. So she was willing to go through the emotionally difficult time of this civil trial. And the trial took place in 1987. James Tiger Knowles, one of the two killers, testified. He testified. He, he's strange when he testified. He was kind of very emotionally disengaged. It's as if he was describing some abstract act that didn't emotionally involve him. And that time in the courtroom, he did the same thing. But on the last day of the trial, when Morris Tease made his final remarks, Tiger Knowles said, well, you know, I'd like to say something here. I'd like to say something. And Morris, you know, a lot of lawyers would not want that to happen because they wouldn't know what he would say. Morris had already made a powerful statement, but Morris said, okay. and didn't even ask him what he was going to say. And Tiger Knowles got up in that courtroom and he said, what we've done wrong is wrong. It's evil. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Mrs. Donald. I can't tell you. He began to cry. And Mrs. Donald said, I forgive you. I forgive you for what you've done. And everyone in the courtroom, including the judge, had tears in his eyes at hearing this powerful, powerful statement from Tiger Knowles. Then uh, Michael Figures, who was a black lawyer, the prominent politician in southern Alabama, who was the co-consul. And he got up and obviously this was a racial matter, racial crime. But in the end, Mr. Figures said, you know, do not ask who the bells toll. It tolls for all of us. He didn't make it as a matter of race. He said, essentially, this could happen to a black man. It could happen to a white man, too. The jury took about four hours in deliberation, and they came back with a $7 million verdict against the United Clans of America. That broke the Klan for good. And in succeeding years, the Southern Poverty Law Center has used that same legal theory to destroy at least half a dozen other racist organizations. Let's talk about that legal theory. It seems a little bit groundbreaking to me that you could hold an organization responsible for murders committed by its members. How do you think he was able to be successful with this? Throughout the book, I think one of the most striking things that you describe is how unseriously so many of these Klan members took Morris D's suit. They seemed a bit offended that they were being held responsible for this murder. They did not seem, you know, as frightened as you think they might be about being held responsible. Could you describe a little bit about this legal theory and 
um, how it came to be used in this case and how he was successful in making this argument that the organization could be held responsible for murders committed by its members. Well, first of all, Morristees had to show that the leadership of the United Clans of America advocated violence, advocated specifically, and its followers learned from the leadership and they were carrying forth what they were asked to do. And he was able to get a deposition from a James Rowe, a FBI undercover agent who was in the car the day that Viola Luosa, a civil rights activist, was murdered, was shot to death in Selma, Alabama in 1965, right after the march to Montgomery. And he said how beforehand, Shelton had told them to go out and do what had to be done. Now, Shelton was a shrewd man. At that point, he didn't specifically say go and kill somebody, but it was clear what he was saying. And then they found another man who had been the leader of a Klan group in another Alabama town who had gone out and shot up the houses of a civil rights activist, shot up the house of a white woman who was dating a black man. And uh, he told how Shelton had come to their group and had talked about violence, talked about the violent acts they had perpetuated before, proudly talked how they'd beaten up freedom riders in Birmingham, Alabama, and in Montgomery. So with these two incidents, he could show a pattern of violence. He could show a pattern of violence. And thus, he was able to convict him. Now, in, in another kind of justice, I mean, George Wallace should have been brought to trial, too. I mean, George Wallace advocated violence as well and uh, did it in such a way that, that there were others who carried it out. When George Wallace was his last term in government as governor, one of his aides came up to him and, and Wallace was very distraught and said, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell. And uh, the aide said, no, governor, you're a born again Christian. You're not going to go to hell. And Governor Wallace said, yes, but my words led to people being killed. My words led to these deaths, and I am responsible. As a non-lawyer, was there anything in reporting this book that really surprised you about either the process or, or what actually happened in the courtroom? Well, not that, but overall. I mean, this book shows lawyers at their worst and at, at their best. Look, the, the Southern lawyers, the Alabama lawyers, uh, you know, in, in the early part of the 20th century, 1903, put forth a new constitution that basically disenfranchised blacks. They perpetuated laws that created a new, a kind of a, an American apartheid in the South. These were lawyers that were involved in this. But later in the civil rights movement, there were lawyers who helped. There were lawyers who brought a kind of at least a partial freedom to black Americans. I gave a co-host at a party, a dinner party for Andrew Young, the civil rights activist and former mayor of Alabama and member of Congress. And he was talking about civil rights. And one person got up at the party and said, you know, we're all Democrats here. And this is a great the way the Democrats fought for civil rights and without Democrats are ever big. And Andrew Young said, you're missing it. The Republicans were involved. There were Republican judges without which civil rights would not have advanced. One of the most famous of them is Frank Johnson, whose name is on so many important acts and decisions in the South. So it was the law that really became the salvation. You think of the uh, 1955-1956 bus boycott in Montgomery. I mean, these people walked for a whole year. They didn't take the buses. But in the end, it was the United States Supreme Court that outlawed segregation on those buses. And it was the federal courts without which we would not be in a place where our in America and have the freedoms that we have. So, Lawrence, um, you are just launching this book. Do you know what the next topic of your next book will be? Or are you pretty much focused on publicizing the lynching and, 
and looking around for a new subject. Yeah, I'm looking around for new, new subjects. As a non-lawyer, at this late stage in my career, I've started writing these legal books, and I find it absolutely fascinating. It's been such an honor to get to know so many lawyers and to travel around the country and talk to them. I'm doing that for this book. I'm talking to various bar associations. I just am very impressed with so many of the lawyers I'm meeting. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. For our readers who want to know more, go to the ABAjournal.com. And the name of the book that Lawrence Lima wrote is The Lynching, the epic courtroom battle that brought down the Klan.